And let's turn this evening to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 11, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the Gospel according to Mark. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and they'll put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you tonight. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Now, when they drew near uh, Jerusalem to Bethphage in Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it here. And so they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood by said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke uh, to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and Jesus sat on that colt, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches and uh, probably palm branches in that part of the world from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed behind this procession of Jesus upon that, uh, that donkey, they cried out saying, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany uh, with the twelve. The event that Mark describes right here is... Uh, occurs on the Sunday immediately prior to Jesus' crucifixion. So we are in the final week of his life and ministry prior to his crucifixion, his death, his burial, uh, and his uh, resurrection. This Sunday uh, of this event is known as Palm Sunday uh, because of the idea that the branches that would have been thrown before Jesus and the procession as he is on that donkey would have, uh, at least in large part, have been uh, palm branches. And that Sunday is the day that Jesus made what is known as his triumphal entry uh, into the city of Jerusalem before uh, the Jewish people. What Jesus was doing in all of this was very, very simple. He was publicly and openly declaring himself to be Uh, the Messiah of the Jews and to be the Savior uh, of the world. And over and over again, you might remember when Jesus was in his public ministry, it was essentially the the Jewish religious leaders that hassled him all the time. But we're told repeatedly that, that the common people heard him gladly. And very often as he would do a great miracle or a great teaching, Uh, everyone would come together and they would try and declare him to be the king of Israel. They would try to make him the king of Israel. And Jesus would always deflect that attempt on the part of the people, and he would deflect it, interestingly, with a particular phrase. He would do so saying, 
my hour or my day has not yet uh, come. And, uh, and yet on this particular day, this Sunday before his crucifixion, he allows all of that to happen. He allows him to proclaim him to be the Messiah and, and to be the, the promised one of God as he makes his way from the eastern hills where Bethany was across the Kidron Valley and then formally into the area of the temple in, in Jerusalem. The excitement of the crowd I, it would really be something to have been in the middle of all of this. I mean, you think about three and a half years of his public ministry, just harassment and harassment and harassment and rejection by the Jewish religious leaders. And here he is, the promised Messiah uh, of the Jews. He is the very Son of God. And then finally on this day, what he deserved from all Jews, including the Jewish religious leaders, now all of it just pours forth. And the people are not hindered in any way. Jesus does not restrict them uh, in, in any way at all. And so this beautiful uh, spring day in Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, he crests on, again on that eastern side uh, from the area of Bethany and then comes down across the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem itself. And it's fully lined with people who are singing to him. They are all uh, so excited, throwing the palm branches down, throwing down their own garments be, uh, before him. And all of it, none of it organized, none of it, okay, here, you know, telling people, have a crowd out here and we'll do this, and here's the songs we want you to sing, spontaneous and, 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 and beautiful. The, the interesting thing about this triumphal entry, or probably the most interesting thing about the triumphal entry of Jesus on that day is that in entering into Jerusalem in the way that he did and on the day that he did, he fulfilled three major Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. The first one is there for us in, uh, in, as we would see in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their clothes on it, and he sat uh, on it. And then he begins to make his way into Jerusalem on, on the, the colt or the foal uh, of a donkey. And this was the fulfillment of a prophecy by, uh, uh, by Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, who declared that when the Messiah came, he would be revealed to, uh, the, uh, to Israel as her king by riding into Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey, exactly as Jesus does on this day. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is precisely what they were doing. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In verse 9 and verse 10, here you have the multitudes recognizing Jesus fully as uh, the Messiah. And, uh, and they recognize Jesus as a fulfillment of another great prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, this time from uh, uh, Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, I will praise you, the psalmist writes, 
For you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, which is Hosanna as they're singing this. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So that was the second prophecy uh, that Jesus fulfilled out of the great prophetic uh, psalm, Psalm 118. The, the additionally, and I think very significantly, Jesus made his triumphal entry on the exact day prophesied by uh, the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, we'll get there one day. And, uh, and this is why, and it explains to us why Jesus repeatedly refused to allow the people on the, the, the years and months prior to this day to uh, announce him as king and, to, uh, and, and make him as king. And the reason that Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, my day has not yet come, is because this particular fulfillment of, of uh, these psalms and, and, and for him to come in at his triumphal entry, it was a day, it was an event that was reserved for a particular day in history. In Daniel chapter 9, we won't go into it in any kind of uh, super depth, but God spoke to Daniel and he said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. That is a total of seven, sixty-nine sevens. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks or the 62 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And we know historically in 538 B.C., it, that was the year that the prophet Daniel prophesied this concerning the Messiah, that there would come a day in which a command would be given to restore and to build Jerusalem uh, again. And from the time that that command is given, there will be 69 sevens until there is the coming of Messiah the Prince. And you remember that uh, the, the Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in their third and final conquest of, of the city of, of Jerusalem. When you look at those 69 sevens and you would view them as years, as virtually everyone does, uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel in terms of the 69 sevens, it comes to a total of 483 years. The prophecy is given at the time in which the Babylonians rule the world, including how time was measured in terms of a calendar year. And the Babylonian calendar was not uh, governed by a 365-day-a-year calendar, but 360 days. So if you take the 69 sevens, which represent years, and multiply them by the 360 of the calendar year in which the prophecy is given by Daniel, who is in uh, captivity himself in Babylon, uh, you come to a total of 173,880 uh, days. And we know from Nehemiah chapter 2 that a decree was given by a king by the name of Artaxerxes, and uh, he did so on March 14th, 445 B.C., 
And when you take that decree for the city to be rebuilt, including the wall, and you add that 173,880 days to that, you come to April 6, 32 AD, the very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is a stunning fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, impressive beyond, uh, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, of description. And it's one of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in, in his first coming. He'll fulfill the rest of them in his second coming. One of the interesting things about that prophecy is, is that it's time-sensitive. And by that I mean there is no one, no Jew, no no one, who can come on the scene in human history today and declare themselves to be Messiah and actually be Messiah on the basis of the Old Testament prophecies. Because the, the hour in which to fulfill this prophecy passed almost 2,000 years ago. In other words, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then no one is the Messiah. And it's one of the amazing prophecies concerning Jesus in the entire Old Testament. Every single Jew in the world ought to have been in Jerusalem on that day and lining the uh, road, I don't know how many people deep in all directions as Jesus made his triumphal entry. What could God do more than to give mankind and give the Jews themselves the very day in which Messiah would reveal himself to be Messiah and King to the nation. How do you miss that? And, and, and that's the kind of clarity that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament Scriptures and why Jesus fulfilled this one in the way that he did. Jesus is Messiah. But more than that, He is Messiah according to the Scriptures. And only He is. When the Antichrist comes on the scene in the Great Tribulation period, he, and, and He will be uh, re recognized or thought of as the Jews as being the Messiah uh, for the first three and a half years, because he will allow them to rebuild their temple and so forth. And the Jews, by and large today, almost all of them, do not believe that Jesus, that Messiah is divine or the Son of God. We'll see that uh, next week, Lord willing, as we get into chapter 12 and Jesus' response to that. I mean, you just shut their mouths related to that, that view of the Messiah. But they're completely set up to now believe some great man who was born of the lineage of David who will allow them to rebuild their temple and, and protect them and make them great in, in the world once again. But that Antichrist who rises up to do that in any self-proclaimed Messiah that would try to do that today cannot do so and say, I am the Messiah on the basis of the Old Testament prophecies because no one can fulfill this prophecy. That's gone. They're arriving 2,000 years too late to do that. One of my, and one of the reasons that I mentioned this and spend a little time on it today is because of how significant this passage and, and, and the whole prophetic element of the Scriptures 
has meant to me in all my years as a Christian. In, in the margin of your Bible, you might write 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. And allow me to read it to you right now. Peter writes, and he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you, do you have people in your life that think you believe a fairy tale in being a Christian and believing in a God and believing in a cre- Creator and believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world? It is bec- it's becoming increasingly so. So. And it was very common in the first century. Peter writes of it. We have not followed cunningly devised fables, obviously as they were accused, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, for we, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard even we, uh, when we were with him on the holy mount. And Peter talks about the fact, because it was Peter, James, and John that were on the mount of transfiguration with Jesus when he was transfigured into his eternal glory. And this tremendous experience that he had with the other two, he says, this is my life experience with Jesus. And I could make this great life experience, this great event in my life, and I could say, the reason I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the thing that gets me through and gets my faith through all of the mockery and all of the taunting and all of the doubts that are brought uh, my way by those that don't believe in the world, that world that when people come against my faith, I always tell them something from my personal experience that I was on the Mount of Transfiguration and this is what I saw and I heard. It's not what Peter says. Peter says, even though that was a part of my life experience, it is not the foundation for why I believe and I know Jesus to be the promised Messiah. He goes on in that passage and he says, we have the more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you uh, do well that you take heed uh, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Is this world a dark place? It's a dark place on a lot of levels, but it's certainly a dark place related to a person of faith as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star arises in your heart. And he said, the basis for my faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior of the world is the more sure word of prophecy, that he is a perfect match to the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. And the reason I spend time on it, even though I know it's familiar territory for some of you uh, today, I don't know what spiritual warfare is like for you. I only know what it is for me. And I know that it has been incredibly intense. I mean, in, in, in times in the course of my Christian life, and, and it's ongoing. There's always the attack. And we are becoming, as Christians, a small, certainly in the Western world and certainly in the United States, a smaller and smaller minority. And the attack upon our faith and the attack upon our belief in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior, they just get bolder and bolder and stronger and stronger. And if my belief in Jesus Christ as my Messiah and as my Savior 
is solely on the basis of some experience I've had with him in the course of my life, as wonderful as that might be, the day will come when the warfare is so intense and that it is so strong that even that will not protect our faith. What will protect our faith in the midst of the doubts that the devil can come with is to go back and say, look at those prophetic scriptures and that God has given to us so that when the Messiah came and he fulfilled those scriptures, we would recognize him for who he is and Jesus is the perf- perfect description of that, those, uh, those prophecies. And so our faith is founded upon the surest thing in the world and that is the word of God uh, itself. And it is a firm anchor. You remember when Jesus, he's talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus on the Sunday morning of his resurrection. And, and, they, and the, the single great uh, cloud or atmosphere that hangs over them is they're talking to him and they have no idea that it's him. And they're speaking of Jesus as the Messiah and they say the words, we had hoped. Their hope was over in the light of, of, of Jesus' death upon the cross. And then what did Jesus do related to their faith? He did, he did another f- uh, five loaves and two uh, fish. Miracle for it. And that's not what he did. He went all the way back into Moses and beginning at Moses, all the way through the prophets. He declared how it is that Messiah would have to come into the world and that he would have to suffer and he would have to die and he would have to rise again. He took their faith back to the Scriptures as a foundation for the ultimate test of their faith and those, for those early disciples. And I, 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 there's a trend, you know, within Christianity in general right now to move away, strongly move away from producing disciples, Christians like you and I, with a working knowledge of the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. We just need the New Testament because we're Christians. And yet that's not how Peter saw it, and that's not how any wise Christian sees it, and it's not what Jesus said when he spoke to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He took them back to the foundation the foundation for the truths of the New Testament and took them back there in in the prophetic angle of that is a foundation for our faith. It is a horrible mistake to think that I can either become a Christian that is going to withstand the kind of, of intensity of warfare and sophistication and cleverness uh, of, of warfare in this hour and not have a working understanding of the Scriptures and how it is that Jesus did not just pop up on the scene one day in human history, declare himself to be Messiah, and now we're all supposed to believe it on his word, but to realize this is something that goes way back thousands of years into the Old Testament. And I, and I say all of this tonight, because I know each and every one of us are going to hit a warfare or an attack or an a doubt or some kind of person that's going to attack our faith. And what the foundation that will never budge on us is the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies in a way not only that no one else had ever fulfilled those prophecies or could, but never can even to this day. 
I just want to encourage all of us. I, don't, I, I could go home to be uh, with the Lord this week. You could too. We don't know that we're ever going to have this same gathering again with the same people in the room. Probably will not. Some two or three or four will not be here next time or whatever, not related to death, just the movement that happens within the body of Christ. But just to, to realize and to understand, we need to know the whole Bible and, and to go deep in that Bible related to our faith. That is what a normal Bible, New Testament, Old Testament Christian child of God is supposed to look like. Not just enough to get me through the daily of my life, but to really know this Bible well enough that it is the single greatest influence in my life by the Holy Spirit over all other things. It, it is an, an amazing fulfillment on this day that, that Jesus fulfilled those three prophecies in a way that they can never, ever be fulfilled now. And so uh, they uh, were told that the, in, in uh, verse 12, the next day, which is now Monday of that week, when they had come out of Bethany, Jesus on the final week of his life never spent a single night in Jerusalem. He always returned to Bethany. Why? He had friends there. And, and he had Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and that was the house, and maybe some others there too, but he always spent the night there among loving people in the midst of unbelievable opposition being raised up against him in terms of the religious institution. And so the next day when they came out from Bethany, now making their way uh, to Jerusalem, and he was hungry. And uh, seeing afar, from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something uh, on it. He's hungry. This looks like a time that, uh, you know, a, a, a solution to my, my hunger. But he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response to this, Jesus said, let no, uh, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples uh, heard it. Uh, other than uh, Jesus' uh, causing those uh, pigs to be filled with the demons and then to run themselves to, to death uh, up in Gadara in, in the north, this is the only uh, of, uh, other one, the, the two events in which Jesus, uh, there's this kind, a, a death related to the use of his power. And so he comes and he looks at this tree. It's got leaves. It's got the appearance of health. It's got every indication that it ought to have fruit and to satisfy uh, his, his hunger. And, and, but instead it was all leaves and it was no fruit. When, when Mark writes here and he says it was not seasoned for figs, we're told that in that part of the world that the fig trees there, they produce an early edible fruit that uh, comes uh, before the leaves appear and uh, in the spring, and then the leaves come, and then the final uh, great kind of crop of, of fruit comes later in the summer. And so that early kind of uh, a crop of, of the figs, it was edible, uh, and it was a kind of foreshadowing of the regular crop that was to come. And if there were no early figs, there would be no, no later, later figs at all. And so Jesus then, he just curses the fig tree 
Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And then they continued to make their way, uh, verse 15, into the city uh, of, of Jerusalem. And so uh, then Jesus, he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold uh, in the temple. And, uh, and, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. This is the second time that Jesus clears the temple. He did it once at the very beginning of his public ministry, and they did not heed him when he did it before. And now he does it one final time before the cross. And as you probably remember, this, what the Jewish establishment had turned the temple into was just a, a money grab. It was a religious money grab. There are a lot of thieves in the world. I don't like thieves. I don't like people who steal in five seconds what other people have spent hours and days and weeks of their lives to earn the money to buy that. It's particularly repulsive to me. And the only thing worse than a regular thief is a religious thief, a person who hides behind God and, and, and makes that the, the great front or the, the great thing that they hide behind in order to separate people from their money. And it's a terrible thing, and it's always gone on through history. And that's what they had turned the temple into. People were supposed to bring uh, Jewish money every year related to the feasts, and, and they were to offer a, a, a half shekel every man that was above a certain age at the temple, but, but the, the money changers in the temple would not take Roman coin. So you'd have to change it into the Jewish shekel, and in order to exchange it, they would gouge you with the exchange rate. You'd bring your animal from the north up in the Galilee to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord. The, the priest would be very careful to find a flaw in it, reject it, and then tell you, over here are, are sheep and goats that you can offer that are approved by the priests. But boy, what a steep price you're going to pay for it. And what happened is these people who loved God, they wanted to worship God, they wanted to bless God, this was the, before they could even get into the worship of the Lord, this is what they ran into, and it left this awful taste in their mouth. Look at what these people have done to Judaism in a relationship with God, and it was just awful. I remember watching one of those documentaries years ago. I forget what it was. It was one of those exposés, and they had a particular televangelist. And uh, an absolute crazy man, really. But he was in college, and he was wondering what in the world was he going to do with his life. And he didn't want to work, and he didn't want to work hard. But boy, he was a flim-flam man, and you could, you could see it. And he said the easiest way to make money is to do it as a televangelist, to separate Christians from their money. And of course, he had homes all over the place and cars all over the place, not just in the United States, but around the world. And it's, such, it's apparently a very easy thing to do. And these people were doing this, this same kind of thing. And so Jesus comes in and he clears, and people are taking their wares through the temple. This is the holy place. Under the old covenant, the holiest place in the world. And, and they've turned it into a home shopping network. 
They're just bringing any kind of whatever that they can rip people off with and, and bring and cutting their way across the temple grounds. I mean, it's, it, it would be an affront to anyone, but think about the affront that it would be uh, to Jesus. I mean, the temple, the area of the temple, all of it a model of heaven, and he sees, look at how you are misrepresenting what heaven is really like with what you've turned this into in the eyes of people. I mean, a, a righteous anger here. And as he, he cleansed that temple, he then taught, having done so, he doesn't drive everyone away from the temple, just these rip-off artists. And then he taught and he said to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves, a place where thieves and, you know, rip-off artists uh, hang out in. And what the temple was intended to be was a place to meet with God. It represented His presence under the Old Covenant. It was a place to meet with God and a place to pray to God, whether in what we call prayer or in the form of what we've just done, prayer in the form of worship to the Lord. And they had turned it until, uh, until it was about everything other than that. And you notice when Jesus quotes related to this, he says, is it not written, my house? And he declares it concerning himself. They're going to challenge him about his authority in just a moment to do what he does in cleansing the temple a second time, and he's able to do it. Why? It's his house. It's his house. It belongs to him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard all of it, and uh, they sought out uh, instead of being humble in their response to what Jesus did and saying, you're right, this is disgusting. I don't know how I go home and face my children and grandchildren with what we're doing to people every day here. Much less, what am I going to do one day when I face the Lord on all of this? Now, there's no reaction like that. The scribes and the chief priests, they heard this, and what was their reaction? They sought how they might destroy him. Yes, that's a rational uh, reaction. For they feared him because all of the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of, of the city, again back to Bethany, and uh, to return again the following morning, as we see here in verse 20. And so the, in the morning, that's Tuesday now, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree there, and it was dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, he said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to him, uh, to them, have faith in God. And, and, and what the fig, tree, the fig tree is representative. It's one of the many images of Israel within the Old Testament. And this fig tree that Jesus cursed was a picture, really, of what uh, Judaism under the scribes and Pharisees, what they had turned it uh, into. And it was all leaves and no fruit. They had, had given great attention how to put something together that gives the appearance of life, the appearance of being what God wants it to be. But there was no fruit People weren't being turned back to God. It was just an operation that existed just to self-exist. But it never produced faith in people. And it never, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it never advanced people spiritually. 
And so Jesus' lesson here, when he's talking about the fig tree, he's not just talking about the fig tree, he's talking about uh, what the scribes and Pharisees had done to Judaism and the Sadducees. It's all leaves and it's no fruit. And then, and, and, and as he uh, said to them, have faith in God. You want to have leaves and fruit? You want something real and vital? something that represents God and represents what God wants to do in our lives, you're going to have to reject that system of what they've put together. Have faith in God. Get your own personal relationship with God where you know Him well enough that you trust Him and, and, can, and that your, your faith in Him is, and your relationship is with Him is not based upon other leaders or religious system or anyone else, but it is based solely upon uh, the, the faith and depth of relationship that you have with Him. That's where spiritual fruit is found. And th there's a place for religious leaders or spiritual leaders. There's a place for churches. There's a place for denominations and non-denominations. None of it's bad uh, if it's, if it, if it's God-honoring. But it is never to take the place where any of that ha has a, a higher authority within my life than, than my own personal relationship with him. And Jesus said, verily, verily, I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not, uh, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have uh, whatever uh, he says. And, of course, we have to qualify this because otherwise we could all sit here and say, hold on a second, uh, Pastor Damien, I've got a, a, a 1991 a Honda Civic out there and I'd like to uh, go out and find a new uh, Lexus SUV. So I'm just going to ask, uh, ask for it here in the light of this promise right here. And, uh, and could you end the service real quick so we could go all get our Lexuses out? No. It's not an unqualified statement that Jesus makes here. He makes it to disciples. And a disciple is a person who has denied himself, takes up his cross, follow after him. The will of God is the supreme concern within our life. So as we pray in accordance with the word of God and the will of God for our lives, God promises to uh, answer those prayers in a powerful and, and dynamic way, independent of religious systems. We can have the, the relationship with God that we want to have individually. And every one of us in this room tonight has the relationship with God that we want. Because Jesus said, if you draw nigh to me, I will draw nigh to you. In other words, you have what, whatever you want this to be, I will meet you there. And, and so Jesus is saying, here, go for it. Go as deep as you want. Forget the religious institutions, mediators, any of that kind of stuff. You take that kind of faith and submission to God and watch. You'll have leaves and you'll have fruit. It won't just be appearances. It'll be reality and you'll impact your generation. Therefore, I say to you that whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you'll receive them and you will have them. And whenever you, and, and now that he's on the subject of prayer, he says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, now that's, those are big words. Anything and anyone. You just got to stop for a second and think about that. I'm, I'm working on uh, uh, to find some, uh, you know, uh, something that narrows it down a little bit, maybe in the Greek. 
so that it's something less than anyone and everyone and, uh, and anything. So quite a, quite a demand that he makes here. And so you want to pray? You want to pray big? You want to pray in faith? You want powerful answers to your prayer? Jesus is saying to the disciples, well, you cannot pray to me with unforgiveness in your heart. That, that'll be a quench. That's a hindrance to power. And, and, it'll be, and then what will, what will happen is we'll just become uh, leaves and no fruit. It's not, it's not because we're above the temptation of where the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees went. That's all inside of me. I'm fully capable of all of it. And so he warns us against unforgiveness. You want to pray in this way? Effective prayer? Prayer that God will answer, that boosts your faith and makes you fruitful in the world for the kingdom of God. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, he's not talking about being forgiven of our sins in terms of our spiritual birth. He's talking about once we become Christians now and holding unforgiveness toward other people. And again, this, this is, we could do, we could literally do seven sermons on what's contained in, in these verses right here. But, uh, but you know, sufficient for us uh, to realize how important forgiveness is uh, to Jesus and, and what a, a hindrance it is to powerful prayer and, and effective uh, a prayer, effectual prayer in situations. And, and again, as I say every so often, it is impossible for us, and I speak to myself supremely, to represent a forgiving God without being forgiving uh, myself. And then they came uh, again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they uh, came to him. And they said to him, uh, by what authority are you doing these things? And the idea is clearing the temple this way. And who gave you uh, this authority to do these things? And so they challenge him to produce his uh, certificate uh, of what rabbi he taught under, what credentials he had, what authority from the existing uh, religious establishment to do exactly what he had done uh, on, the, on the temple uh, area. And remember, the, religious, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they had a temple police force. And when it talks about the fact that they wanted to stop him, but they couldn't because he was so popular among the people, they knew they wanted to arrest him. But they knew it would create a riot among the people. And they're very, they're very political here on all of this, very careful about their polling. And, uh, but now they catch him uh, uh, privately, and they challenge him. Though he's in, uh, away from the environment uh, privately, they catch him in an open place. By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? Again, the authority is that he's the Son of God. And uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And Jesus said to them, uh, he said, I, will also ask, I also will ask you one question, and then answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. It was very helpful to realize, I think, that as a Christian, 
Uh, we're supposed to be nice people, you know, and, and I think by and large we are, except when we're killing one another. But uh, you don't have to answer every question that is posed to you. And you don't have to answer um, dishonest questions that are posed to you. Uh, you. You have freedom to answer or not. And Jesus here, he, he accepts the question, but he says, I'm not going to answer uh, the question that you're asking me uh, until you answer a simple question that I'm going to give to you. And uh, then I will… then. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And he poses the question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from uh, men? Answer me. Now, it would be something to hear Jesus say, answer me. I'm on, I think I'm on the wrong side of the conversation. And they realize that they're in, in, in a pickle. And, and, they rec- and, and they understand it. Everybody understands it here. And they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say that John's ministry from, was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why did you not believe him? Believe him in what way? John the Baptist, uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, three and one-half years earlier than this, declared to the entire nation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, but I must decrease. John spent the remainder of all of his life before he was martyred and, and, and pointing people to Jesus as the Messiah. And they said, well, we can't say that John's ministry was, was uh, you know, from heaven because Jesus will just simply say, why didn't you believe him? And why don't you still believe his assessment of me? That I'm not only the Messiah, but I'm the very Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then they said, but if we say John's ministry was from men, this is just a, he was just a religious huckster. And he just, he, he was a self-promoter and he put this whole thing together and all. They said, well, we can't really say that because they feared the people who were evidently around in listening to all of this, for they counted John to have been a prophet indeed. They'd have probably got stoned to death themselves if they said, no, nah, John was a, just a bunch of nonsense, that ministry of his. Now, the people knew better, so they're stuck here. And so they answered, and this is just so ugly. They do a huddle. I mean, they do a huddle. Again, sometimes I watch politicians on television, on the news at night. I only listen to one hour-long thing of news every evening. And I think, how do you face your children and your grandchildren lying every day the way that you do. For the sake of what? I mean, no, no concern for your reputation, your legacy, what your name means, if nothing to you, to what it ought to mean to your children. And this is, this is way bigger than that. And they know what the answer is. They know exactly what the answer is. But they huddle together, and, and, and now they're going to try and, and uh, uh, limit the damage here. And what are we going to say when all you got to do is just get up every morning and tell the truth, and you ought to be fine? And so they answered, and they said to Jesus, we do not know. Complete lie. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you what authority, by what authority I do these things. So Jesus promised them. 
that he wouldn't tell them if they didn't answer his question, and, uh, and he kept his promise. He didn't tell them. They weren't honest seekers. Uh, dis- very, very uh, uh, dishonest. The authority that Jesus had behind all, of, uh, all that he did was not only as Messiah, but as the very Son of God. Let's uh, dip our toe into chapter 12 uh, a little bit. And then Jesus, he began to speak to them in parables. And here is the parable of, of the, the vineyard. And, uh, and he, in, in verse 1, he paints a picture that is very, uh, very common imagery in, in the ancient world. And he said, a man, and this man represents God the Father. He planted a vineyard. A vineyard is representative of Israel in the Old Testament and also in the parable. And he set a hedge around it. And that hedge was the law of Moses. And one of the purposes of the law of Moses was to be a hedge of protection around the Jewish people, to keep them as a separated people so they would not be absorbed by the Gentile world so that God could bring the Messiah into the world through their bloodline. So he provided them with a hedge in the form of the law. Then he dug a place for the wine uh, uh, vat. In other words, they were to be spiritually prosperous and, uh, in, as, as a nation. And he, and he built, uh, it gave them everything that was required for being uh, prosperous spiritually. And then he built the tower. He protected them through all of the years of their history. And then he leased it. He, the, the, the man, the father, he never gives over the oversight of the vineyard, the nation of Israel, its spiritual welfare. He never gives it over, uh, deeds it over to these vine dressers. He leases it to the vine dressers who are the Jewish religious leaders at the time of, uh, 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 that Jesus speaks uh, about all of this. This, this uh, nation uh, was entrusted to the oversight of these, uh, these men, and then the man goes into a far country. And at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers and that he might have some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. The owner, this was something that you would expect, fruit from what belongs to you and is identified with you. And then they took this uh, servant that was sent and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Now, when you're a landlord, you, uh, there's got to be a bad sign. That could upset you, actually. So, but this, this man, God the Father, he's, he's, he's patient. And so he sent them another servant, which tells us he's more patient than me. And at him they threw stones, and they wounded him in the head, and they sent him uh, away shamefully treated. This is talking about the prophets that God sent repeatedly uh, to the nation of Israel to get them to turn, to turn from uh, their, their apostasy and their wickedness. And every time God would send a prophet, they would be uh, abused and mistreated. And again, He sent another. And, uh, and, and him, they, they decided to kill. Isaiah was one of those prophets who was sent by God and killed. Killed... Killed not by the Amalekites, not killed by the Egyptians or the Phoenicians or the Canaanites, but killed by God's people and many others, beating some and killing some, and therefore still having one son. I mean, what grace. 
his beloved, he also sent him uh, to them at last saying, they'll respect my son. I mean, they won't compete with my son for the possession of what belongs to me. Surely they won't do that. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, and come and let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. How would you like to be under religious leaders? Now, Jesus is exposing how cold and dark the hearts of these Jewish religious leaders uh, were. And to be under that kind of spiritual oversight. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were even at this moment. Remember, this is just days before Jesus' crucifixion. They are planning his death. Why? Because he doesn't match the description of Messiah in the Old Testament? No, but because they feared the people. And that he was becoming so popular that his popularity had the potential of people turning to him, and then they lose their money-making operation and their power. And they want to hold on to that. And so the vine dresses again in verse 7. They said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. We're going to kill the son. <laughs> and then with the idea that you can kill the son of the landowner and somehow there's not going to be repercussions for this, but the vineyard will somehow be turned over uh, to you. The inheritance will be ours. And so they took him. They took the son, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus died at Calvary outside the walls of the city. And therefore, what will the owner, Jesus continues, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And Jesus answers his question. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others, which is precisely what he uh, did. And this warning against, to the Jewish religious leaders, it was just his way of saying to them, I know everything you're thinking. I know everything that you have planned. You are not going to win in this thing. It will be your destruction, what you're doing. And this vineyard, this place of fruitfulness, this place of the advancement of the kingdom of God and reaching people for God. It will be moved out from under your oversight and given to people that are worthy of it. And then he takes them to the Scriptures and he says, have you uh, not even read this Scripture? And of course, that would have been a, a sanctified poke in the eye. They thought they were the experts in the Scriptures. And Jesus said, well, I know you're great students of the Scripture, but I think you missed one. Because in planning to kill me, and you're going to accomplish it because God is going to allow it, you are merely fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures that said this is what would happen to the very Son of God. Have you not read this Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118. Again, a great messianic psalm and it has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And in their rejection of Jesus and their planning of his crucifixion, they were simply fulfilling even further the Old Testament prophecies concerning how he would be greeted by the religious establishment when he came. And so Jesus confronts them. They're going to do what they're going to do, and God is going to allow it, 
in order for Jesus' blood to be shed, that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. But it wasn't like they were going to do this because they're getting away with a power play and some kind of a secret thing that they're accomplishing. Jesus was saying, I know everything about what you're doing, and you will not prevail. And hallelujah, they did not prevail. God is able to work all things together for good in human history. And, the, and, and if, he's, if he did it at Calvary, he can do it in any circumstance in my life and in your life as well. And so we'll stop there. Well, we'll go on in, into verse 12 here. Because you would hate me next week to repeat all of that just to close this verse. And here's their response to it. And they said, we see this, we get it, we repent in sackcloth and ashes. You are so right on. We are disgusted by our own hearts. And can we turn and from the wickedness of our, our ways? No. They sought to lay hands on him. But again, they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left and went there and, and went away. No brokenness, no repentance, no humility at all. It's an awful, awful picture. Let's stand together and we'll have the worship team uh, come out and uh, close this up in a, a worship song in, in just a moment. If you stand here this evening and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you uh, to become a Christian tonight. I say it often, but I mean it every time I say it. And uh, that, that, that nothing in this world can ever satisfy and nothing in this world will ever make sense until we are engaged in the relationship that, with God that we have been created for. And if you haven't started that relationship, that isn't the relationship that you, that you have uh, with God through Christ, we'd love for, to pray with you to have that start tonight. What would... I, 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 is a, just a, a regular guy, regular Christian guy that stands before you and who in their right mind would reject Jesus and bet their eternity that he is wrong just in the light of his fulfillment of one prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, who would do it? What thinking person would do it? But God hasn't given us the prophecies of the Old Testament in order that we might uh, reject Christ and, and then one day in rejecting Christ be held accountable for that rejection. But he gives us these prophecies so that we can recognize that Jesus is unique in all of human history and come to recognize him is the Messiah and the Savior that God sent into the world and to make him our Savior tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word this evening. We thank you for every little glimpse and insight that you have given to us in our Savior's life and into your heart and into your ways and how you see things. And we thank you, Lord, for the blessing of studying this passage here together tonight and to do so with you this evening. We thank you for this time that we've had to worship you in spirit and in truth with a sincere desire to bless your heart, Lord, 
And in this silly little small place, even in Modesto, let alone the whole world, 4300 American Avenue, for this little place, for this amount of time, to have it be set aside for you and for your glory. And we just thank you, Lord, for who you are. And as we close this service tonight, we magnify you, we glorify you, we give you from our hearts, Lord, the honor that you and you alone deserve. And we count it a privilege to do so, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.